for man to be alone. So God on day six zooms in, and we see that in chapter two. And out of Adam, he forms Eve. Adam and Eve wake up from the first uh, uh, anesthetized surgery that God performs, and Adam breathes like men of the ages have for all time. Uh, when he sees this woman created, he breathes the first poetry. And uh, he, he speaks poetry about this beautiful creature that God has made that is his uh, equal in all things and is to help him uh, accomplish God's dominion uh, principle over all the earth. And so all of this in this perfect place, perfect environment is interrupted by sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And we see in the beginning, there's separation from God because of this sin. Now the sin principle brings a curse, an expulsion from the garden, the perfect place of God's perfect presence and perfect perfect provision. And now Adam and Eve have to toil by the sweat of their brow. They labor hard to get what they, they get from the ground and they bear children and they hope by, beyond hope that God's blessing of a seed will come immediately. And unfortunately, they find the opposite. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death, and death has come to their very doorstep. And so, fast forward then, uh, back to the text in verse 5. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness and after his image and named his son Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. He had sons and daughters so that all the days of Adam lived were 930 years. And what happened? He died. You see, prior to this, prior to the murder of, of Abel, prior to the fall, death had not happened. See, death is the result of sin. By the way, that is a, an amazing, clear theological principle as to why that God created in six literal days. If there was a mechanism of death, decay, and destruction prior to the creation week, then God doesn't really know how to define what's good, does he? He doesn't really know how to call evil, evil, and good, good. And of course, we, we know that's not true. God gets to define all those things. I, I digress. Go back to the text. So what we find here then in, in verse 5 introduces a pattern for the rest of chapter 5. I won't bore you with it yet. And it won't be boring when I get to it, I promise. But what you find is every one of these cycles, he lived this many years, he bore a kid, and he died. And this happens over and over and over. In fact, go ahead and look at verse 8. Seth died. Verse, not, verse 11, Enosh died. Uh, verse 14, he died. Verse 17, he died. Verse 20, and he died. Verse 24, ah, I gotcha. There's an interruption to the pattern. It slaps you in the face in the text. We're going to get to it. God took him. He lived. That's interesting. Well, let's keep going. Uh, verse 27, he died. Verse 31, he died. Now, look with me at chapter 6, and let's read all eight verses of the first section, because this is where the Toledoth ends. It starts in 5.1 and ends at 6.8. So this is the next full section, and it links to chapter 4. But here, here's what it says. Now it came to pass, and by the way, when did it come to pass? Uh, in verse 32, Noah was 500 years old. He begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So it came to pass in the days of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's what we're meant to see. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply. And by the way, um, again, mark the words men, sons, daughters, men. Okay, When men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. 
There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Permit me, if you will, to cheat a bit and read ahead. Look at verse 9. This is the genealogy. There's the Toledoth. This is the beginning of the next section. But look what the genealogy, the next Toledoth, that links to this one. Look what it says. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah's a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Now let's wait a second. Where did you hear that phrase once before? Verse 24 of chapter 5. Enoch walked with God. So the interruption in the he died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. He walked with God. He died, he died, he died shows up here linking to the next section, all right? So I don't get to preach on that section. Pastor Stephen gets to preach on that section. Uh, but I, I'm going to tell you today, I am going to give you at least two messages in chapters five and six. I know some of you are breathing a deep sigh of relief because that means we aren't going to be here for two and a half hours, and that's true. However, I do want to point this out. Note how many times the word man shows up between chapter 425 and chapter 68. A lot, right? And if you're a Bible marker, you've already started to mark them, and you're not going to get distracted during my sermon and mark the rest of them in chapter 5, right? You'll do that later at home, right? And so as you think about that truth, that helps us understand the full context, because remember, a story without a context is a pretext. So the context of this is meant to drive us to a reality. God made man in his image. God gave man dominion. Man disobeyed God, broke God's law, and death entered into the world by man. And so death has passed upon all men, for all have sinned, the authors of the New Testament would say, and because of man's sin, man needs redemption. So God, his very first promise to Eve that a redeemer would come shows up in Genesis 3.15. And the theme of God's promise, his blessing, and his redemption is meant to be showcased through the lineage of Seth here in chapter 5, in contrast to the lineage of Cain in chapter 4, and that it's linked directly with whom in chapter five, 6. And the days of Noah, because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And in the generations of the genealogy of Noah, Noah was a just and perfect man in all his generations because he walked with God. Who else walked with God? A son of Seth, Enoch. So the idea here and the clear reality of the big picture of this is God is showcasing two worldviews. The way of Cain or the way of God. This is how we introduced chapter four last time, remember? So we're going to see a hybrid of that reality now to showcase this. Sin destroys, but God delivers through God's way versus man's way. God's way versus man's way. So it was the way of Cain. Now it's the way of man. And so we see now Cain and his worldview has fostered the fruit of followers. Do you remember that from chapter four? I know you have to think back two weeks to get there. But from chapter four, we saw that Cain's way fostered the fruit of followers. And so did Abel's way through Seth. And so as we, as we therefore understand this watershed decision that Cain made to sow the fruit of followers, we now see the text emphasizing not only... Um, is this a solidified pattern that all mankind will follow? But there is a solution that God will provide that will deliver all of mankind. That is the point 
of this narrative that hooks to Noah. Because what happens in Noah's generation? They all die. Except for Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and his wife, through the means of God's deliverance, an ark with one door, with one entrance, that God opens and closes himself. Does that sound familiar? Harold, the future Messiah to come, whose name is Jesus, who is the singular way, the singular truth, and the eternal life, and, and he is the door to the sheepfold, and God offers him freely as his one and only son to whosoever will may come to him, and he will give them free life, but they must call on him and believe that God has raised him from the dead, and they must do so in faith and repentance from sin. Noah's generation refused to repent and refused to believe, and only eight souls were saved. So this is the connection. Now, I will now tell you that in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, it is probably one of the most controversial texts that we will come to in our entire discussion on Genesis. Okay? Um, and I will, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to preach an entire message on it after Pastor Stephen gets through his mini series. Okay? I apologize for those of you who are visiting and you won't get to hear it today. You'll just have to come back, right? Or watch it online. Uh, but we will deal with, there are, there are issues here with the phrase sons of God versus daughters of men. And there's issue with the word giant or might translated mighty later. It's, it's the Hebrew word Nephilim. Now, I, what I don't want you to do, and maybe this is bad. Maybe I'm, I'm pulling a Paul moment. If the law had not shown me covetousness, I wouldn't have known it. Um, just take my word for it. If you looked this topic up on YouTube, you would have thousands of hours of discussion on this particular instance where someone will try to convince you of a specific position on this particular text. And I promise I am going to do my very best in a future sermon next time I get to preach. I will walk you through what the text says, where theologians grab texts from the New Testament and other places in the Old Testament to figure out what they think it might mean. And I'm gonna give it full justice. I will literally lay it side by side I will not infuse my interpretation. I will just tell you exactly what it is, and then we will compare it to the context and make some theological applications. Today's point of today's message is for you to look at the big picture and not get lost in the weeds of what could be considered a complicated or confusing topic. Uh, and, and for those of you who don't know, one of the interpretations here, sons of God, would be that this would have been fallen angels that somehow procreated uh, with mankind and their offspring was an abomination and therefore this was a part of the cause of the flood. So that is just throwing it out there, one of the interpretations. There are two main ones and of several hybrid interpretations from that singular one, okay? So I want to tell you, I think that the main point of the text today, especially as, as I preach it, um, should be very clear. What was the one word that we saw repeated over and over again, man, man. And then man did what as a result of sin? They died. So the judgment that comes on the earth was account of who? Man. Do you see that from the text? This is not me reading into it. This is me reading the text to you. So regardless of the interpretation of the difficulty of that section, whether it was demonically empowered or whether it was, you know, demonically overruled or whatever, the point is simply this. Man sinned, man dies, God delivers. Sin brings death and destruction and destroys. God brings deliverance through man and ultimately through the one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. And there's a type of the one man introduced here in the next Toledoth, and his name is Noah, right? You get it? Hey, nobody fell asleep yet. Good job, guys. <laughs> All right, so let's get to what we would now call the sermon. 
So as we look at the context of this, you've done so well. Let me dive into this reality and tell you that I only have two points today, but there are some sub points. So as we look at the context, we realize that chapter five, begin, beginning this second Toledoth, it, as it picks up the truth that the two worldviews were shown in chapter four, and they culminate in the fruit of followers whose lives reveal two divergent results. And so as we look at the text, we find that the theme of this text is simply this. There are two re divergent results of God's way versus man's way. So we either will follow God's way or will follow man's way, and we are going to have a different result, result depending on which one we choose. That is the theme of this entire Toledoth. So I'm preaching the big picture, and then I'm going to narrow it down to the facts in my second sermon three weeks from now, four weeks from now. Pastor Stephen's preaching the next three weeks and many. He gets to preach the good stuff, too. He gets to preach about the flood and all that happiness that's involved in that. And, and the Tower of Babel, and all the excitement that happens there, right? No, it's not really that happy. But anyway, uh, we're going to jump back backward on this topic in a bit. But now, what we're going to ask the question this morning is this. What does the text reveal about these two divergent worldview results? Because that is where, where the text is driving us. If there are two ways, God's way and man's way, and both of those ways have divergent results, what does the text show us about them? And you probably can guess it based on the context of the introduction this morning, afternoon, almost. Uh, as we look at the context, we're going to find this. That last time we were together in Genesis, we picked up this narrative by closing out the, the end of chapter 4, which was a masterfully written message presenting both God's way of worship and Cain's way, producing the fruit of followers. So the reader is then presented with these watershed decisions to make. Which way will we choose? Will we choose God's way of worship or Cain's way? Our choice will have productive consequences in the life, in this life and the next one to come. And so we saw last time that our choice of past will produce a fruit of followers. But today, chapter five then begins in the second standalone Toledoth section uh, that culminates in the fruit of followers whose lives reveal two divergent paths. To follow Cain is to receive God's curse, which results in eternal separation from God and a demonically empowered desire to live life apart from God. To follow Seth is to receive God's blessing of a promised deliverance despite the universality of sin and its consequences. Neither descendant's lineage can escape the universality of sin and its consequence of death and destruction, but God brings deliverance his way through Seth's line. And so we see the truth that we apply today is this, you and I must choose God's way to be delivered. We must choose God's way to be delivered. Now, lest you think you can check your brain now at the door because you say, well, pastor, I did that already. I, I was saved, baptized, been discipled. You know, I've been living the Christian walk a long time. Hey, listen to the context of this, because the context will hearken back to even what Andrew preached this morning. True identity in Christ produces works of righteousness. Works of righteousness do not produce true identity in Christ. And I hope you'll see the difference here as we look at the context. So uh, as we look at the text today, we're going to see two worldviews. The chapter four reveals following the fall and the expulsion from the garden, both culminating the fruit of followers, but only one resulting in God's blessing. Therefore, the narrative reveals the two results of, the, of those worldviews. Number one, we will see the result of God's way or deliverance. That's from 5.1 all the way to 6.8. Finally, excuse me, that's from all of chapter five and found in chapter six, verse eight. Finally, we are going to see the result of man's way, and that's destruction. And we see that in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 6. So two big points today. And as we think about those points, let us be reminded that you and I must choose God's way to be delivered. Our choice of God's way is not just a choice to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ once for all, to believe and repent, and then to follow that in active living 
It's, it's a daily choice to live out the gospel in our lives in a way that showcases that we are not following man's way, but we are rather choosing God's way. And that'll make sense as we walk through this text. So let's take a look at the very first point this morning, the result of God's way, which is deliverance. Yes, we're starting with the happy one first, because that's really all of chapter five, minus the he died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he lived. He died, he died, he died, he died. All right. So as we look at this context, following the account of human sin and death in chapters 2, 4 to 426, Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sets out by means of genealogy to show the continuing effect of sin while also highlighting God's faithfulness to his promise and the procreation blessing that he bestowed on them in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. The written account of chapter 5 of Adam's family traces his offspring through Seth. And in effect, it's Seth's genealogy, the counterpart to Cain. Remember chapter 4, verses 17 to 24? It's been appropriated by the author to bridge this Toledoth of the heavens and the earth that shows up in chapter 2 to 4. And the flood story, which companions or champions, excuse me, champions Noah from 6 9 to 9 28, the section Pastor Stephen is preaching on. It also backtracks to chapter 1 and 2 by echoing the creation of humanity in God's image. Did you see that? So the realization of the divine command to be fruitful and fill the earth, therefore, alludes to the garden scene and the subsequent events that spell out the painful aftermath of sin for the human family. Its purpose, like the later Shemite lineage found in chapter 11 that we'll get to one day, is to span a gap in the narrative by moving the setting ahead rapidly from creation to the flood. It both expedites the telling of the early history of humanity and contributes to the author's theological premise that is brought forward. And what is the theological premise that we've been talking about? What is our theme for the year? Sin destroys, but God delivers. We see that from the beginning. So we've already acknowledged the parallels and differences between the Sethite line and the Cain genealogy. Although these two lines of descent have superficial similarities, they also present a stark dissimilarity. There's no link between Cain and Adam in the formal genealogy in chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. No link at all. No formal link between Adam and Cain on purpose. Why do you think that is? Because Adam is linked to Seth, which is then linked to Christ in Matthew. Right, So we can derive from the lineages that are showcased throughout Scripture and scriptural history that Adam was a true follower of the one true God, Yahweh, whose name is Jesus, his only begotten son in the New Testament. Right, Cain is not mentioned at all again. And in fact, we see the way of Cain, or man's way, and the way of Seth, coming to a full head at chapter 6, verse 9. And what happens to the lineage of Cain and all of his descendants and all of his accomplishments through Jubal and Jabal and Tubal-Cain? Architecture, uh, arts, sciences, uh, the, the pinnacle of human history. What happens to them? What happens to Cain? They are completely destroyed. No recollection or memory on the earth ever again, except for this written record in God's infallible word. And ironically, mankind rejects this record. The only record of Cain is in the Bible. All of his descendants are gone. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is linked to Seth, who's linked to Adam. And thus, all of us now repeat the promise of blessing and prosperity that is available to all mankind despite the universality of sin. But we must choose God's way to be delivered. Cain's way leads to destruction. God's way leads to deliverance. And that is the big picture of this text. So the first result God's deliverance. We've already acknowledged these parallels. So let's talk about God's deliverance through his blessing. Notice back in chapter five of the text. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created a man. He made him in the likeness of God, created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. 
So notice back in chapter one, he's linking, excuse me, chapter five, he's linking back to chapter one, the major blessing of mankind, God's deliverance through blessing. So God, Genesis 5 follows this pattern. It, it presents a stereotype for each patriarch here in Genesis 5. I told you I would bore you a little bit. Uh, this shouldn't be boring, but there's a scheme presented. Looking at verse 6 and following, from verse 6 to verse 32, remember the pattern that ended in, what did it end in? He died. He died, he died, he died. He died, he died. Oh, he walked with God. He lived. He died, he died, he died. He died. There's 10 generations that are mentioned. The seventh is different than all the others. But look at this pattern then. What's, what, what is the pattern? The personal name. He lived X number of years and he begot another personal name. And then the personal name lived an X number of years and begot another personal name who lived a Y number of years. And then he, this personal name, begot sons and daughters. And all the days of that third personal name were X plus Y years and he died. This is the pattern. Guess what? That pattern doesn't show up for Cain's generation at all. Because when did they die? At the flood. They died, 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 died. They're gone, never to be recovered, never to be talked about. The only time they ever think about them is when we look at the text of Genesis. Yet this formulaic device creates an impression of unity across these 10 generations of Adam's family. Its uniformity also provides a literary foil for highlighting four members of the family. Notice the four members that are highlighted, Adam, Enoch, Lamech, and Noah. These are the four members of the family that are highlighted because they came in blocks, didn't they? Now, the, this uh, biographical pattern is altered for a special purpose. This other significant uh, literary diversion is the final entry of the genealogy, which pre presents a segmented genealogy of Noah's three, three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 11 is going to use the same tactic with the naming of Terah's three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Now, I will connect those dots when we get to chapter 11, so don't forget I said it, but you know, don't dwell on it. Okay, let's move on. So Shem, or, or in the, each triad of the sons, the first listed... Uh, the first fathers of the chosen line of blessing. Chapter four's genealogy concludes with Lamech's three sons, but include his daughter, Naamah. Adam too has three sons named Cain, Abel, and Seth. Thus the matching genealogies of chapter five and 11 isolate the appointed line that spans creation to patriarchal times. This is meant for us to see a link to God's what? Deliverance. God delivers. And what was the command God gave in the garden to Adam and Eve before sin happened? Be fruitful and multiply. So God's deliverance through blessing, through blessing. And so there's a promissory blessing, not only of dominion, of procreation, but there's a promissory blessing that comes from God that's linked throughout the book of Genesis. The table of nations that we end up finding in chapter 11 and then chapter 12 of table of Abraham um, showcases the same thing, and it's highlighted in triads, and we'll see that later on. Like creation, which has harmony and progression under the authoritative word of, word of God, history also has its order, symmetry, and cohesion. And as we realize the blessing is not left to happenstance, nor is it subject to the autonomy of human will, God is the one who blesses. Listen, friends, how does this apply to me in 2023 on April the 16th? It's a good question. Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you accepted God's one and only way? Are you following the path of God's deliverance and thus receiving God's blessing? Then, then proclaim the goodness of God. Let the redeemed of the Lord Say so, as the prophets say, right? Instead of being like the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years that were typified by complaining and grumbling, let's be men and women that are typified by praise and thanks to our God. For in everything, give thanks, Paul would tell the Thessalonians, for this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. Say, Pastor, you don't know what my life is like. 
You don't know how broken my relationships are, how, how traumatized I've been at work, or how horrible my marriage has been, or how uh, upsetting my familial relations have been, and how many people have cut me off, or I've been cut off, or I've cut off. Or You don't understand how difficult uh, the cancer battle has been, or the financial struggle that I've had. Pastor, you just don't understand. Well, you know what? I might not understand what you're going through, but I've been through several of those things too. And I can tell you, God's blessing is still prominent in the midst of suffering. And that's the picture here in Genesis. Is there not sin, death, decay, and destruction during the lineage of Seth leading up to the line of Noah? Doesn't Noah get on the boat with only eight people of perhaps hundreds of millions? Some scientists even estimate there could have been billions of people on planet Earth by the time of the flood. Can you imagine? You talk about PTSD, right? Or I should say post-traumatic stress and not disorder. Just drop the disorder and just call it post-traumatic stress. Can you imagine? Can you imagine waking up post-flood on the earth, freaking out the first time you hear a rumble of volcano? Oh, is the flood coming again? Oh, just aftershock. Can you imagine uh, trudging down Mount Ararat and looking at the area where Garden of Eden existed just a few hundred miles away, likely, or through a few thousand miles away, and wondering, will God ever bring back the beauty of the garden? Will it ever exist again? Will the promise of God ever return? And yet, God's grace through Noah, because Noah found favor. And friends, if you are here today and you're in the midst of real struggle, real suffering, real sorrow, real financial distress, real physical sickness, real trial and real challenge, can I tell you God is still there walking with you because he is your deliverer and he will give you blessing. The blessing of eternal life, the blessing of daily fellowship, and even in the midst of your suffering, he will carry you through it because he'll never leave you or forsake you. And friend, if you will believe in God's blessing and promise of deliverance through his one and only son, you can have the peace and the solidarity that comes from knowing God personally and walking with him every day. God's deliverance through blessing can come to you and to me today as well. If we choose God's way, we will be delivered. Well, what are some of the blessings? There's three in the text. The blessing of an image bearer. The opening line, this book is the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness, references the Bible's first poem in Genesis 1.27. Do you notice that? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Chiastic, beautiful, connected. This is a reference to the first poem in Scripture. This retrospect reminded the descendants of Seth that the fall had not obliterated the image of God in them. And because they were image bearers, they had unparalleled privilege and potential. First as image bearers, they had the capacity to hear God's word, which is something no other creature except angels could do. Secondly, as image bearers, they were charged to rule the earth as God had stated in God's stead. And third, the image of God in them suggested the possibility of an intimate spiritual relationship as a child of God. Listen, friend, all of us are still image bearers. You and I rub shoulders with incredible generation that does not know the love of God. They do not know that they were made in the image of God, male and female. And instead of being angry and belligerent and cramming, uh, you know, um, uh, anger and vitriol down their throat to say, well, you aren't identifying the way God created you, so there's something wrong with you. Is it true that they should identify with the way God created them? Of course. But friends, they are lost. They're looking for the love of God. And guess what? You and I represent the love of God. What are we to do in a generation that doesn't understand their identity? We are to herald on the housetops that God has made them special and God loves them and he has given them an eternal identity through his son, Jesus. And if they will claim that identity, God will help them sort out the physical identity issues they're struggling with today. Now, that doesn't mean we accept 
sinful lifestyles or sinful habits or sinful patterns and, and absorb that and say, you can practice uh, whatever you would like to practice um, as long as it makes you happy. No, we practice what God says we ought to in obedience to God's word, but we do that by loving other image bearers to be more and more like Jesus. The image of God is in every male and female in this world, whether they're saved or lost. Therefore, they have incredible value. Let us not devalue those who are looking for identity by name-calling or by exclusion. Well, I can't give the gospel to this person because they're not like me. Duh. There's only one you. So nobody's like you. Now, you may have a little bit of progeny that reflects you here and there. But ultimately, the point is simply this. God made them in his image. It's a blessing. Pursue them in love. Help them find their creator who loved them and their redeemer who died for them. His name is Jesus, and he wants them in his family. Just like God sent a preacher of righteousness in the days of deep discouragement and despair, and only eight souls were saved. So God has sent you as preachers of righteousness in a day of darkness, in a day where the image is being marred and misunderstood, and there's no absolute truth for people to cling to, so they think. But we have the absolute truth. God loves them and made them in his image and wants them to love him. There's a law of the blessing of God and the deliverance of God when we claim the truth that we are indeed his image bearers, and then we accept who we are. I am male. I identify with he and him. God made me that way. There are aspects of maleness that really are annoying. I admit it. Men, we just really aren't verbally gifted. Sorry, ladies. Naturally, it doesn't come, you know, we don't, we don't naturally come home from work and be like, let's talk. Let me just tell you how I feel. Let me share with you all my hopes and fears and dreams of today, all of the interactions, lovely interactions I had at work. Let me just share it all with you today. It will only take us about 11 and a half hours, but we have time, right? All night, I don't need sleep. Let me just share it with you. That's just not the way God made us. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to talk to our wives, men. <laughs> we shouldn't try to open up and be vulnerable. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but, but there's aspects of maleness that can be really annoying. Now, I'm not a female, and I wouldn't dare throw females under the bus today. There are two of them in my household, and I love them dearly, and I want to live. But I'm telling you, there are no doubt aspects of femininity that can be a little annoying to you ladies. And yet, we need each other, and we're made for each other. And when we own who we've been made to be, we are reflecting the blessing of the image bearer of God. And when we partner together for the advance of God's call, we are actually showcasing a wonderful harmony that is impossible apart from Christ. And as image bearers, we need to remember this is God's blessing. Let us love other image bearers to Jesus and not discourage them from coming to him. There's a second blessing in here. There's the blessing of procreation. And as we look at this blessing of procreation, what do we see here? Well, we see uh, similarly as the image of God has not been obliterated by the fall, neither has the blessing of procreation. Thus, Seth, the Sethite line was reminded in verse 2, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. The blessing had been defined in chapter 1, verse 28, as a physical procreation and multiplication. Remember, chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. The Sethites were to get with it and fill the earth. The genealogy in Genesis 5 demonstrates, guess what? They did. Because it suggests an extraordinary multiplication. The 10-generation structure of the genealogy indicates that it is a selective genealogy with gaps uh, between the ancestors, which leaves room for substantial population increase. The other Genesis genealogy from Seth to Abram also includes 10 generations. Big surprise there. 
King David's genealogy in Ruth chapter 4 also gives the form of 10 names. Again, a big surprise. Hey, do you think the same God wrote the same book? 66 books all smushed together in one big volume over the span of 1,400 years by 40 different men? Pretty impressive. Why? Because it's from the same author, from God. And there's continuity and structure. So therefore, we understand the flexibility of this genealogy, plus the repeated emphasis that the patriarchs had other sons and daughters, plus their amazing longevity. The average age at death was about 900 years prior to Noah. Altogether, argues for a rapid multiplication. Thus, Seth's genealogy shows the patriarchs living out God's blessing and multiplying and spreading the image of God and humanity, especially as many had begun to call upon the name of the Lord in that day. Chapter 4, verse 26. The blessing of procreation. Now listen, let me tie it to 2023 again. Maybe you're in here and you are of childbearing age and you're married and you're struggling. It does not mean that God isn't blessing you. We live in a sin-cursed world. I, I don't often, it's become easier and easier to talk about this now that I'm 43 and I have two beautiful children that I love and they're both actually here today and sitting next to each other. It's miraculous. Just take a picture of this and get a selfie right? Normally they're serving in different capacities. We have two in heaven. And the last one was really, really, really hard. 2012. I would have a 11-year-old right now. Was that God's curse? Does God not love my wife and I? And of course, you know, those are questions that are rhetorical. Of course, God loves us. But God needed those babies with him more than we needed them here. Remember, God's able to bless even your procreation in his will and in his time. And even if it's hard or it doesn't happen, God is still good. And God is still able to bless you and your spiritual procreation. If you are focused so much on the physical aspect of your lives, God is trying to wake us up to the reality that this blessing of procreation in this dispensation is also a blessing of spiritual heritage and spiritual fruit. Are you tracking with me? Because eternal life means that the only thing we get to take with us when we die are other humans. Job put it this way, I came into the world naked, and naked I'm going out. I don't think he stripped down to his skivvies or lack thereof before he died. I think the implication is simply this. I can't take anything physical with me. Only my eternal soul lasts. And by the way, Job said this, that he believed that in his flesh he would see the Lord. So Job had a pop proper theology of end times resurrection and the bodily resurrection of eternal life. And friends, you and I will one day live somewhere forever, either in heaven with God in the home prepared for him with an eternally renewed body with no more sin, no more suffering, no more aches and pains or broken bones, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pulmonary distress that I'm struggling with, right? No more suffering, only a perfect place with a perfect God, with a perfect body. Or we'll live separated from God in a body that was made for eternal damnation that will receive eternal punishment. Revelation chapter 22, in the lake that burns with fire and its smoke rises forever and ever and ever. And friends, I deserve that. But Jesus paid my price and I'm trusting in him. What kind of procreation are you producing now? Are you sharing the love of Jesus? Are you spreading the hope of Christ? Are there people in this room or in your family unit or in your social setting that know Jesus because of the love of Christ shining through you? Well, one day when I graduate from college, I'll be a real soul winner, pastor. One day when I grow up, hey, today is the day. Now is the time. God blesses you with the spiritual opportunity to procreate spiritually, even if physically life is hard, even if you're past baby-bearing age, even if there's, there's failure in your past or hurt or pain in your present circumstance, God still gives you the ability to spiritually share the gospel and produce 
children spiritually by the grace of God. Paul called Timothy his son in the Lord, and I have no doubt they had that special father-son relationship. Friends, the blessing of God comes in bearing his image. The blessing of God comes in procreating, not just physically, but also spiritually. Who have you shared the hope and love of God with? Who comes to your mind that says, you know what, I should reach out to them this week. I love them, and I want them to know the God I love. The third reality here we see, or excuse me, the second uh, sub-point here is God's deliverance comes through a substitute. Promise we'll move a little bit more rapidly here. God's deliverance comes through a substitute. What are the substitute's examples? First of all, there's an example of Enoch. Enoch. Now, did you notice when we counted in chapter 5, what number did Enoch show up as? He died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. Then he walked with God and was not, for God took him. Number 7. So as we look, this astonishing paragraph shines like a single bright star above the earthly record of Enoch. Its light illuminates the dark rhythms of Seth's genealogy. The placement of Enoch's name could not be more intentionally dramatic. Go back to chapter 4 in the Cain genealogy. Who was number 7? Lamech. And what did number 7 do? He made a rhythmic song of the sword, and he had a chest-beating revelry about violence and killing and murder. Because the way of man produces nothing but death and hate and fear-mongering and suffering. And friends, when we look at this world, it should not surprise us that the way of man in our governments all over the globe produce nothing but violence and shame and suffering. You see, when we choose the way of man, we choose the way of destruction. When we choose the way of God, we choose the way of deliverance. This is what the text is meant to show us. And there's so many earthly parallels. Evil Lamech worshipped his sword, the number seven in the Canaanite genealogy, while Enoch, the man who walked with God, is number seven in the Sethite genealogy. These two are placed as eternal antitheses, hell versus heaven, exponential death and unbounded life. There is wisdom for all in the life of Enoch. Enoch walked with God. So what is this phrase, walk with God? It's only applied to Enoch, and I pointed out to Noah in chapter 6, verse 9, Pastor Stephen's passage. And it describes the closest personal communion with God as if walking at the side of God. It must be distinguished from other Old Testament phrases such as walking before God, which shows up in chapter 17 and chapter 24, or walking after God, that shows up in Deuteronomy 13, which describes blameless moral and ethical conduct. Walking with God is far more intimate. The minor prophets use this phrase. In fact, it describes the intimate walk of priests who entered the Holy of Holies to speak directly with God. The phrase also indicates the deepest obedience, for the metaphor of walking suggests walking along God's path in the same direction. The psalmist David got it right when he opens up the psaltery by saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, nor stands in the way of sinner, for his delight is in the law of, in the, of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which bringeth forth its fruit in its season. His leaf shall never wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. David was a man who walked with God, broken failed, fallible, sinful man, but he walked with God. You and I can be men and women who walk with God because when we trust God for our eternal destiny, he redeems our past. He covers it under the blood. He sets us in the present for, for success and he washes us and prepares us for a future eternity with him. We don't have to listen to the devil's lies about our past failure, our past sin, because they're under the blood. They're in Christ. It was finished once for all, paid in full. There is now, therefore, no condemnation, Romans 8, 1, that we read today together. Why? This is the example of Enoch. He walked with God. You can walk with God like Enoch does. 
I can walk with God. I can receive God's blessing. And so can you. The question of how Enoch walked with God worked out what's characterized it in life. We have an answer to that in Hebrews 11.5. We're not going to turn there this morning, but you know the famous text. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So what was it that pleased God about Enoch? By faith. It was his faith in God's provision to deliver that pleased God. The next verse is what tells us that it was God-pleasing faith. That without faith, Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists or that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see, Enoch's faith walk is what pleased God. Your walk by faith is what pleases God. And by faith in whom or what is the, is the true question. Because all of us place faith in stuff, but faith properly placed is faith in God's one and only deliverer, and his name is Jesus. I don't walk by faith in my religiosity. I don't walk by faith in my long-time education, as one day probably Dr. Ryan Horkaby. Woohoo! I don't walk by faith in the fact that I was baptized at some point in my life. Or in fact, that I was part of the church, the Catholic church, and the church of Christ, and a Pentecostal, and a charismatic, and a Bible church. Yes, that is my spiritual heritage. I've been all over the map. No, that is not what my faith is placed in. My faith is placed in none other than Jesus Christ and him alone. You see, Enoch placed his faith in Yahweh, Elohim, the God who provides, the God who guides the God who loves, the God who is the deliverer. First, God-pleasing faith literally believes that God is. He's the awesome, sovereign God of creation. Enoch was made in God's image, and he could hear and respond to God's word, and so he did, believing with all his heart that God is who he says he is. That pleases God, and friends, that pleases God today. Do you believe God's bigger than your problems? Do you believe God is big enough to provide for you? Do you believe God is who he says he is? Is he a God of love? Is he a God of goodness? Is he a God that will take care of you, walk with you, never leave you or forsake you? Friends, if he is, then believe it. Walk by faith. Trust the God who is. Enoch believed that God re rewards those who seek him. That God is positively equitable. Enoch also believed the negative side of this, that God also judges those who reject him and continue to go their own way. Jude 14 and 15 reveals that Enoch, just like Noah after him, preached this, and I quote, It was also about th these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and that, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of unrighteousness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, that's from Jude 14 and 15, a quote from Enoch, and I can't even tell you, I can tell you the source, but I can tell you that the source is definitely not a source we would have pulled from, but the Holy Spirit on the inspiration allowed Jesus's half-brother Jude to pull from that source. And so we have a, a, a physical eternal record of Jesus through Enoch preaching to the unrighteous who would die in the flood. And he would tell them judgment is coming. And guess what? The day that the fountains of the great deep broke forth and that God closed the door on the ark, every single one of those unrighteous men and women were judged. And friend, one day, each and every one of us will pass through the veil of this life. I don't know if it will become, it will come at old age for by reason of our infirmity. I don't know if it'll come in a sudden disaster or imminent destruction, car accident, lightning strike, I don't know why that came to my mind all of a sudden, but it did. Uh, I don't know if it'll come over a tenuous time of suffering with a sickness like a cancer or a debilitating illness, but one day we will grieve our last. And as a believer, it will be our first heavenly breath. 
our lungs will be filled with the glorious, sweet aroma of heaven's pure oxygen, and we will be welcomed by Jesus himself. We'll see our loved ones who've gone before us. We'll listen to their story. We'll rejoice in knowing that our lives mattered because they were part of God's story. We'll get to interview Enoch and say, hey, dude, how was it like walking with God? Right? We'll get to talk to Noah and say, man, how did you keep going after 120 years of preaching and nobody was listening? I have a hard time if somebody falls asleep in my sermon. Can you imagine? Like, what kind of stuff will we be able to see? But most importantly, we'll get to talk to the risen Jesus who died in our place. Oh, friends, Enoch walked by faith. We must walk by faith. Faith in Jesus. The phrase, God took him to the age of 365, apparently a young guy at this this time. He was not, for God took him. So how did God do this? I don't know. Was a fiery chariot like Elijah and Elisha? I have no idea. Did he just kind of evaporate? Was it like the rapture? Is this a rapture passage in the Old Testament? That's, sorry, that was a slap at dispensationalists that are super hyper about rapture. Anyway, uh, I don't know. Maybe so. I, I don't know. It doesn't say. Just as God took him. One day he's walking along, having a communion with God. The next day he's like, whoa, streets of gold. What in the world? This isn't like my hometown. Hey, I dig this, these new threads. White robes of righteousness. This is pretty cool. This really beats the, uh, the sloppy sandals that had mud on them in uh, donkey dew. I was cleaning out the stables this morning, right? I know I'm getting a little imaginative here, right? But here's the point. He walked with God and he was not. God took him. We don't know what ultimately happened, but we know he was taken from this earthly life. He was transposed to life eternal. His hopes were rooted in Jesus, God's one and only son that he had not yet met, that was prophesied through the lineage of Adam and Eve, that came through the line of Seth, that was typified, who would be typified later in his great-great-great-great-grandson Noah, and provided for through the ark, the one way, the one door for eternal deliverance. It's through Jesus. What about the example of Noah? I'm almost done. You're going to be like, no, you're not. I'm not, but I am. So Noah, but just as there were no half measures in executing judgment, there was no half measures in effecting salvation. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. I know I'm fast forwarding through a couple of verses, but look what verse 8 of chapter 6 says, and I, I am almost done. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So the example of Enoch, the example of Noah, how are they connected, pastor? That's a great question. You know the answer to that because they both walked with God. Remember, the only time those phrases are used in the entire scripture has to do with Noah and Enoch and they both walked with God. That was their connection. How did they please God? By faith. They must believe that he is. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and he will execute judgment on those who reject him. Noah found grace. It was all grace. Noah had responded like Enoch to the grace of God. The scriptures say of Noah that he, like Enoch, walked with God. Like Enoch, he walked in deepest intimacy and obedience with God. Noah knew God. Now, Noah was a wretch like the rest of us. He he was not saved by his righteousness. He was saved by grace. He left a more lethal, uh, uh, he he left to himself, he would have perished like the rest. This side of the flood, we don't have, have to fear universal deluge. Nevertheless, we must fear a more lethal flood that of being forever drowned beneath the cold waves of our own sin. Our only hope is God's great grace. Listen to this poem written by Julia Johnson. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Noah was saved by grace. Today, our world rightly sits under the judgment of God. Perhaps it's not thoroughly demonized, but the signs are there. Who can doubt it as they look at popular culture? Who can doubt it when so many of our heroes are people of violence? Every blockbuster movie that comes on, every advertisement is all about death, despair, and destruction, or the sudden escape of death, despair, and destruction. How many uh, Fast and Furious movies are there now? Ten? Ten of them? How How many things blow up and how many people die in those movies? Death, despair, and destruction. Violence is the way of Cain. The whole earth was filled with violence and God relented that he had created man because the heart of man was only evil continually. Friends, our world is not far from the world of Noah. 
We, despite the flood and the cross of Christ, are profoundly sinful people in soul and word and deed. None is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God, for all have sinned and turned aside. Our words, our throat is like an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This is Romans 10, 13 and 14. Romans 10, verse 15 and 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths ruin and are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. You see, friends, if we are left to ourselves, we would be just like everybody else. As were in the days of Noah, Matthew 24, 37 to 39, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware. Until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Our only hope is the marvelous grace of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should brag or boast. He saved us not because of works done by us or in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 5. Friends, you and I must choose God's way and be delivered. Now, you say, Pastor Ryan, you didn't get to point number two. You're right, I didn't. So here it is, and I'll preach on it next time. Because I'm going to have to go over verses 1 to 8 again, right? But let me give you the big picture before I dive into it next time. The result of man's way is destruction. What do we see in verses 1 to 4? We see a destruction of degeneration. A destruction of degeneration. We see what I described just a minute ago that every single thought and intention of man's heart was only evil continually, that every man who pursued the daughters of, of, of men and the sons of God and their consuming of, of a relationship together that produced mighty men of valor on the earth were men that produced only violence. The way of Cain had turned into the way of man and hate and violence and the song of lament Lamech, the beating of the brow and the, the plowing of, of, of agricultural tools into weapons turned into nothing but a bloody death on earth. That is what we see. The destruction of degeneration is spelled out clearly in verses 1 to 4. And by the way, our world is full of degenerates. I don't know about you, but when COVID hit, I despised turning the news on. It had nothing to do with Fauci and the masks, no masks. Shots, no shots, you know, 15 shots, 27 shots, three masks at a time. It, that wasn't the part that was the worst. The worst was watching people burning and looting and destroying city centers. The worst was watching people running around with AK-47s and shooting each other. Whether it was in self-defense or not, it was sad. Wasn't that gripping to your heart? Wasn't that, uh, uh, didn't that leave you with a wrenching pit in your stomach? That human, humans were going around looting and burning and committing violence? Friends, that's degeneration at its worst. And that's where we are today. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Genesis rightly points out verses 1 to 4 of Genesis record is the degeneration of primeval culture. Marriage was demonized. Life shortened and violence idolized. I'm tipping my hat a little bit to the interpretation of the first part of this passage, sons of God, daughters of men, marriage was demonized. So as we look, there's three facts here. Marriage was demonized. Life was shortened. We notice the text tells us 120 years. What had been the average lifespan of the patriarchs up to Noah? 900 years, cut by over a two-thirds, so approximately one-third of the actual lifespan had done previously. God shortened the lifespan of mankind, and later he would shorten it again in the second series of, of patriarchs at the end of the book of Genesis, all because life is full of degeneration. And then, of course, violence was idolized. All they thought and did was violent. Now, the second uh, point here we see is the destruction of total depravity. And what we mean by that, of course, is there is nothing that, that's produced out of this that is good or even highlighted as good. What, did, what, did, what were we told about Lamech and Jabel and Jubal and um, Tubal-Cain? That they had produced music and art and architecture. All that was good, but nothing good is mentioned here. Why? 
because the violence and the destruction and the evil that was continually coming out of the heart of mankind, because man's way is all about life without God. Make no mistake, friend, our governments, our world governments right now are pushing life without God. Our teachers in the public schools are told, you cannot openly confess your faith in Jesus Christ unless you're asked about it. And even if you are asked about it, some student will complain if you mention Jesus. Isn't that true, my brother William? Friends, we live in a world that is trying to live apart from God. They've gone the way of Cain. They're going man's way. They are totally degenerate and completely depraved. And it shouldn't surprise us. And the hope of eternal life is not going to come in political reform. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? We will not elect the perfect president of the United States. There is no such person. Now, should we vote on, on biblical ideals? Yes, please do that for Pete's sake. Don't not vote. Go vote while you have a voice. Do it. Do it well. But friends, know that your vote is not going to change eternal life only thing that changes a soul's eternal destiny is Jesus. So go tell people about Jesus. They are image bearers and they need God's blessing. And then the final truth here today, and I close with this, is the destruction of divine judgment. This is what we see in verses six and seven. God destroys those who are degenerate and depraved. So some theological implications are this. Number one, we see highlighted the interconnectedness of all humanity through God's universal blessing. You and I are blessed by God. We're all connected with all humans. Every single one of us are connected with one another. We should identify with others as fallen humans, and we should love them like God loved them. This is seen through the genealogy of beginnings of Adam to Noah, the new Adam. The second implication is this. And by the way, if you're on Faith Life, all of these notes are available to you. You can join Faith Life, get today's bulletin, and you don't have to scribble down these notes. They'll be available too, and you can watch them online later as well. It illuminates the results of Adam's sin. Death reigned, while also pointing out the continuation of God's promise of preservation. God will always have a place for his righteous followers. Number three, it continues to reveal the unfolding motif of conflict as anticipated in Genesis 3.15. He would crush the serpent's head, the seed of Eve, but his heel would be bruised. Constant conflict for mankind. It will always happen. There will be no government that will ever stop it. Even when the perfect king is ruling for a thousand years, the lifespans are increased and the, earth's, uh, uh, the animal kingdom stops killing us, there will still be a rebellion against Jesus. So it's not political that needs re revision. It's the internal regeneration of the heart. And then finally this. It demonstrates the evolution of and total totality of human wickedness. Deserves God's angry reprisal. But again, despite this, the hope that rests in God's favor toward Noah. You must choose God's way to be delivered. And then I'm just going to flash this on the screen just because it makes me feel better that I showed you all my slides. In conclusion today, we saw the narrative continuation of two divergent worldviews. But you and I must choose one. Which one will you choose? Will you choose God's way and be delivered? Or will you continue on man's path and find destruction? God allows you to make that choice today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for